Welcome to System and Soul, the podcast focused on the human energy that runs your business. I'm Chris White, along with my co-host, Benj Miller. All right, you guys ready? Here we go. Jake, drop that beat. Three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, Benj Miller here, co-host of the System and Soul podcast. I am solo today. Our friend Chris White is out on a clarity break with his copy of the Clarity Field Guide, which you can get on Amazon and enjoy the goodness in there as seen by the five-star reviews. I'm sure there's a link in the show notes or uh, a simple search on Amazon. Today we're going to have some fun. I am here talking with Scott Ritzheimer, and here are the three things that are on his mind. The first is, how do you as a business address root issues when there are always more easy, obvious fires that need to be put out? Number two, how do you hold system structure and process in tension with the creativity, initiative, and experimentation that your business needs? And third, the importance of keeping visionary leaders engaged to support the legacy of the organization. Some fun meat on the bone today as we get into it. Hold on, because here we go. Welcome back to System and Soul. I am your host and co-host today, Benj Miller, and I am here with my friend, Scott Ritzheimer. Scott, it has been Awesome to get to know you over the last few months. I can't wait for the world to experience the collaborations that are to come between our organizations. But for now, let's get to know you. We're going to start off with what is just one crazy fact about you so we can start to get to know you. So crazy fact about me, one that most people don't know. I was, uh, I was married three times all to the same person. Is that an evolution so, of who you yeah, are? Yeah. So how does that happen? No, uh, they actually happen in quite quick succession. So it sounds a lot more interesting it is than it is. Uh, so, but once you get past the initial shock factor, what happened was uh, my wife is from Norway, uh, which uh, I have learned uh, each year more and more that that is a rare commodity and one to be held on to. But um, she uh, was living in Norway at the time. We had met at a, a school in Kansas City and she had gone back to Norway. I had gone back to Pennsylvania. So we needed to uh, we needed to kind of figure out how we were going to do our visa paperwork. And uh, very long story short, we decided to bring her over on a marriage visa instead of an engagement visa, which meant that we had to get married on paper uh, a while before she could leave the country to give time for all this stuff to process. So we actually got married for the first time on my birthday, my 20th birthday, uh, in her pastor's living room with her pastor's neighbor as our witness. And <laughs> it was like, I, it was the day that I showed up uh, uh, to the country, actually. We just jumped in, made it happen. And so it was super kind of like, you know, last minute. Uh, the only thing I really remember about it was that he, uh, he had like, six remotes on the table because like every like electronic device in his uh in his house had a, its own controller and so we talked more about his controllers than we did about me getting married you know it's one of the most <laughs> consequential events in my life uh but for us we're like we were just signing papers and didn't realize how much it would feel like we were married at that point and so on our our way uh back to her parents house um afterwards i said you know 
it's nice to meet you, Mrs. Ritzheimer. And it just hit both of us right then and there. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a really weird month but from then until when we, we were kind of formally married in a, a more traditional setting. Um, and then that was in Norway. We came back to the U.S. and did another ceremony for uh, all of our folks on this side of the, the pond, if you will. So three times. Um, there's this scene in Oceans, I think, 13, uh, where Julia Roberts is getting mad at um, George Clooney's character. And she's like hitting him. And she's like, this is for this and this is for this. And she's this is for ruining our second, third anniversary. So we, <laughs> we, we have fun with that every year. And, you know, happy second, happy second 15th anniversary. And it's, you know, it's just goofy. So. How long have you been married? This will be uh, 16 years uh, this fall. So That's 15 awesome. years now. Yeah. The stories uh, tend to not always end up so great. So congratulations yeah. to you. I'm glad that worked out. It's funny, the way you said that, I literally just within the last week, so I can't remember from where, but somebody said, my wife's been married five to five different men. All of them are me. And he was talking about how he has evolved as a human but his wife has allowed him to evolve and stayed married to him because of some deep rooted common things that they held together. But there was the freedom to evolve as individuals and become different people. And so I thought you were riffing off that at first. So that, that's a great, great story. I love it. No, yeah. That would have been deeper, you know, <laughs> that would have been more profound. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you can just keep tacking on. There were three times in the first year that we got yeah. married. Yeah, and, that's funny. I don't know. There's, there's, there's different numbers and, and there's different extents, but uh, there's a, a growing number of people who theorize that uh, you basically need to get remarried, maybe not formally, but every seven years. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I've found some truth to that. Yeah, um, and um, there was another, we just listened to a podcast, this is so random that we're talking about this right now, but <laughs> they were talking about one of the problems with marriage is that we think we own the other person instead of deciding to wake up and choose that person every day. Uh, one of the you know philosophers forever have argued, can we desire something we already have, right? And so if, if we have this spouse that we once deeply desired, can we still live in a state of desire when we already have the thing that we want? And I think giving up the I own this thing or this is my thing and going to into the, you know, back to the, wow, I, 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 maybe I get this for today and cherish it for today. And it's, it seems sacrilegious to say it's not forever because till death do us part. But in some ways, I think that that uh, gives us a lazy, lazy excuse. Um, so yeah. Okay. We're way off track. Scott, here's the <laughs> format. You're going to give me the top three things that are on your mind and we're going to riff on them for a little while until we can't anymore. So what are the top three things on your mind today? Yeah. First, give so us, give us a little context for what you do, who you are. So people understand why these things are rattling around in your head. Why these things? So uh, I'll open it up and say I've got a fascination with building the things that build things. Uh, I'm a, a fellow consultant uh, like yourself, and uh, it took me a long time to realize it, but I realized I like building businesses a lot better than being in businesses. Uh, I, I like the the creating the thing that can create the things. That yeah. That to me just fascinates me. 
Uh, and in, in kind of going along that path, one of the things I, I somewhat accidentally did was took part in over 20,000 new organization startups. Uh, which sounds really impressive until you tie accidentally to it. And, and that really encapsulates, like it was a ton of work. It was a, a rare opportunity that very few people get to do, especially as early in their careers uh, as I did. Uh, and to see just at scale how organizations are started, thrive, and others fail. Uh, and, uh, and then to, at the same time, be experiencing so many of those same things in my company that I, I you know, I have to always out for it with a caveat. We didn't launch it. We relaunched it whenever I jumped in. And, and that's a whole story to itself. But um, but being a, a starter, a founder, an entrepreneur, working with in the nonprofit and for-profit worlds, these entrepreneurial people and realizing I'm just fascinated by that. You know, I, I never really loved what it was that we did, but I, I, I absolutely adored how we did it. Yeah. And uh, and so that's what led in this stage of my career to uh, to stepping out of, hey, I'm not building my thing. Uh, I really have a focus now on helping others build their things. And I, I've found my calling. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. That, that's awesome. Yeah, we share very similar stories. So you are the CEO and, and founder of Scale Architects. Helping senior leadership teams are the things that you help build to build their companies. Am I reading that right? Yeah, 100%. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Sorry, I skipped past all that. I was just excited to, you know, start hanging out. So what are the three <laughs> things on your mind? So in light of that, right, building the things that build things, right, uh, in sustaining success for any uh, extended period of time, there's three big challenges that I see folks bumping into. And, and uh, again, I'm just fascinated by the way that folks help uh, leaders solve these problems. So first one is... How do we address root issues? This is something I was really, really bad at as a CEO. How do you address root issues when there are more immediate and easily understandable fires that have to be dealt with? Yeah. I, I felt like as a leader, I was constantly chasing after this next thing that we needed to solve, right? It was like, it has to happen. And because of that, I missed the underlying current, currents until we were way out to sea. Yeah. And, and I see that happening again and again. And so I'm just fascinated by like, how do you, like even nuts and bolts, like how do you mechanically spend time on something that you know is important, that you don't understand very well, that you have to tackle while there's something like, we've got to have sales for next month, you know, yeah. or we've got to fill this position that we've not filled for a while. So that's number one, I'm going too long on these. Uh, second one is how do you hold system, structure, process, intention, with creativity, initiative, experimentation, right? How do you get those two worlds working together? Our, our mutual friend, uh, John, what does he call them? He calls them bureaucrats and- uh, Arsonists. And, 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 and arson, no, it's not arsonists. Uh, that's our word. What's the other one? Um, is it arsonists? I don't know. Maybe I'm talking uh, about I think they're else. like like wild men or something like that. It's, uh, okay. uh, yeah, I don't That was terrible. But you get the point. There are two worlds that exist in the organizational culture. Both are essential, and neither of them see each other as being half as important as they're supposed to be. So how do we hold those in tension? And where the rubber meets the road on that, particularly in my world, which is very founder-driven, right? I tend to work yeah. with younger entrepreneurial organizations that may not be young anymore, but the, the person who's leading is the one who started it, right? That's yeah. just a very specific kind of, of dynamic. 
And for those visionary leaders, one of the biggest challenges that I've found is, is, is staying engaged and leaving well. What we tend to do is we, we're kind of all consuming when we're there and then we're completely absent, right? It's the switch flips and we're gone. So one of the things that I'm fascinated with, if, if number two is important, if we have to hold system and process in tension with creativity and initiative, then we've got to keep visionary leaders. We've got to keep founders engaged in their organizations much longer and in a much healthier way than what I typically see in the, the real world. Bro, I love these. I'm so excited to dig in. The first one, this root issues thing. The first thing that comes to my mind is that I, I think that we have a little bit of denial on the root issues because we know man, if we open that up, that is a lot of work to actually like, um, yeah, I can let that person go, but then I've got to deal with all the work that they were supposed to do, finding somebody else to do, you know what I mean? Like the solving the problem creates a hundred more problems sometimes. Is that part of what is in your mind when you're thinking about that? We hate ambiguity right? We, we hate uncertainty. I, I would say our brains are wired to prevent us from stepping into it. Yeah. Right. If I don't know, right, what's inside of that deep, dark ocean, I better not go swim in it, you know, because something may eat me. Like we have a survival instinct that kicks in long before it ever should, right? In the business world, no one's life is at stake 90% of the time. And that's different in some environments. But the context of what we're talking about here from a long-term leadership perspective is not necessarily immediate threat to someone's life. Yeah. And so we've got this kind of uncertainty trigger. It's like, hey, if, if I don't know what that is, if I, don't, if I can't solve it before I even start, I may get into a place where I can't solve it. I may get out of my depth. And now all of a sudden I'm in a really bad way. So let me go back to doing what I know. I think that's temptation number one. And I think that's, that's the, really the vast majority of it. And then temptation number two, I think is, is also what you said of, okay, I may know what it needs to do, but I don't want to do that. Right? Like, yeah. I, I, and so we'll bury our head in the sand. And I think when those two kind of conspire with each other, there's a little bit of uncertainty about what it's actually going to look like. Uh, our brain is telling us you won't survive that, right? Uh, and then there's this discomfort over what that's actually going to mean. You mean I have to tell my best friend that he's not the one to help lead my business forward, right? Uh, you mean I've got to fire that person that I just convinced to, to move here with their family from across the country? You mean, I, you know, fill in the blank, like this is right. real world, real life stuff. Um, and I, I think when those two conspire against each other, it, it's just so much easier to go out and kind of hope for a silver bullet, right? It, well, maybe I can keep him. If we can just get sales up a little bit over here, right, then maybe I can keep him. Or, or if we can do this other thing, then that, maybe right. that'll go away. Right. And and I think a lot of times what happens is and why this impacts my world so much is this tends to be how we look for coaches. Right. It tends to be how we actually finally get outside of ourselves, particularly as founders or entrepreneurs. We go out and look for someone who can help solve that immediate yeah. challenge. Yeah. But or even help, if they help me not it. have to fire my brother in law. Right. Or or if I do, you do it for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, come in and save me. Now, we would never use that language, and, and most of us would never admit that, but that's really what we're doing, 
which is fascinating. And, uh, and in, in looking for a savior, no coach can save you, right? No outside expert can save your company. No outside expert can, can whatever. Now, they can help you, right? They can be a catalyst for change. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the decisions and choices that you make. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right, so if, that's, if this is like a problem that's bouncing in your head, have you landed on anything that's helpful? Uh, so I think you got to address each of the things. So one is uh, you've got to create some clarity around what the root causes are, right? Because if it's uncertain, if we don't know what it is, there's just too many things stacked against you. So when I'm working with teams, we actually spend a lot of time around this issue uh, and we use a tool to do it. Uh, and we don't have to get overly into tools and models and everything. But uh, what we found is that most of those root causes are actually very predictable. Most of the root causes, the fundamental issues that are going on, follow a very consistent pattern. Again, 20,000 organizations, you see patterns happening again and again and again, right? And, and uh, what we found is that there are distinct problems that happen as root causes in an organization at different times in the organization's existence. So some of the things that are really easy to understand is a brand new startup, what are they trying to do? They've got to sell something, right? If you don't sell something, you don't survive as an organization. But for a bigger organization, that, that, you know, that is true in a sense, but it actually moves to becoming a symptom. So what was once a root cause, if we don't sell something, we're, we're gone, is now actually a symptom of poor leadership, bad structure, mm -hmm. uh, missing what the market actually is, right? Poor sales in a larger organization is typically not a root cause. It's typically a, a symptom of a more fundamental issue. And so, again, going back to how we described it, if we don't recognize, hey, the root cause has changed, right, which is hard to do because it's uncertain and it's cloudy, then we'll look at what were the root causes in the past, right, and we'll go yeah. back to doing the things that we know yeah. how to do. Yeah. Yes. Ha habits, you know, are so ingrained. Um, and maybe it's back to your comment about loving certainty we tend to go back to the things that we know I do it personally like if I've got a, a, a objective that I'm working on if it makes me in any way uncomfortable I'm gonna find any creative work that I have to do to prioritize and I'll come up with the next coolest whiz-bang thing that's awesome but it's also because I'm not doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, which can drive my team nuts. So totally with you there. I cut you off. Keep going. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's, it's recognizing how those root causes change over time. That has proven to be really, really helpful. I didn't have that. That's one of the things that I wish I had as a leader. I remember the very first time I was going out and looking for a coach because we had hired some folks as kind of – we were hiring silver bullets, right? We, we, mm. I made that mistake so many times, and it bit us every single time. And so I kind of had a bad taste in my mouth about coaching or consulting. Like if we couldn't figure it out, nobody can was, was really the lie that I believed. And uh, I finally got into the world of, of a, a guy who's still a coach of mine today. And I remember saying like, hey, I don't need someone to tell us how to do what we're doing today. Like we've mostly figured that out. I need someone to tell me what's around the corner because I keep getting blindsided. That's good. 
and intuitively I could, I could feel that, you know, it's like once, once we knew what it was, we could fix it, but it took us so long to recognize that those root causes had changed that by the time we finally got around to it, we had to unravel so many things that your point, you know, point two is it became so uncomfortable. You know, like we had to shut down entire parts of our organization. We had to, I had to fire some of my best friends. Like I had to, uh, and, and I wouldn't have had to do that, especially not in the same way or with the same degree of pain if I had known ahead of time that that's what was coming, right? Or if at least I had recognized it when it happened. Yeah. So I, I think being able to step back and look at what those patterns, knowing what those patterns are, even having language around what to call them, all of those things I've found help to increase the level of certainty around what we need to do to change. Yeah. One of my most helpful principles is is related to this, which is just try to find like, what is the reality? Because we, we will tend to live in a fantasy until we actually name what is the reality. Even if it's this, your sales example, we need to sell something that is the reality. And that even something as blatantly obvious as that is easy to skim over to focus on other things. You know, no, this, the reality is we need to sell something. And so once you name it and put it on the table, then everybody can go, you know, rally around the thing, but at least we're dealing with the reality. And sometimes the reality is way uglier than we need to sell something, but we've got, we've got a surface reality. Um, clarity breaks are great for that. I like asking like trick questions sometimes, you know, like, Hey, if you had an extra day in your week, what would, what would you spend it on? And it tends to be the thing that people are ignoring or putting off. Uh, do you have any tricks in that realm of, of pulling out the root issues? What are tricks? So one is, is less, less tricky and, and clever. And two is we've just named the stages, right? We, we just okay. go through and say, okay, Hey, here's what it is. Right. Uh, and, and so because we have names for the stages, we can say, and I bet you that X, Y, and Z are happening. And, yeah. and it's, it's scary how accurate that is. Right. I get accused every, like when I go and speak, I get accused. I think every single time of like, do you have cameras in our office? Like, have you been reading my emails? Like, how could you possibly know that? Uh, and so, uh, but even that's hard to get hold of. I remember the first time I learned about this model and the idea that there were life cycle stages and someone, someone could tell me without being there, what had happened in my organization. It's like, like there's a resistance to it yeah again especially in the entrepreneurial world because a lot of people have done that in our past and have been wrong right lots of people give you lots of great advice as a as an entrepreneur and you succeed by ignoring it or using it as a challenge to say let me show you otherwise right and uh and so we've kind of got to get past that you know like i was saying if i can't figure it out nobody can we've got to get past that uh, and, and, and again, like using a tool that helps us get down to the bottom of it. Yeah. In your life cycle stages, I'm going to guess that the majority of our, our audience listening is in fun. So what are, let's just stick there for one second, just so we can get some examples. What are those, like, what are the root issues that you tend to see in fun? So which, root which may be that, a bad name, by the way. Like, yeah, yeah, fun. Not so, all fun is fun. Well, no, it's a great name. It's a great name because if you're in fun and you're not having fun, right? If you're of an organization that's the right size, doing the right things, and you're not having fun, right? Then you actually have some really big root 
fundamental problems because fun should be fun. There are other times that are not inherently fun in an organization. And so I actually do quite a bit of one-on-one -on -one coaching with founders who are in fun. And I always tell them flat out, my goal is to help you have more fun because if you're not having fun now, you're never going to have fun as a business leader. Yeah. And, and so what causes that? Uh, th there's a number of things, but, but quite honestly, it's that we overcomplicate things. And it comes from so many different sources. So there are more visionary types who overcomplicate things by constantly creating new stuff and then expecting everyone else to hold it up mm. in the air, right? The, the analogy I like to give is like, you know, let's say uh, I have this idea of, hey, let's toss one ball in the air, right? And how hard is it? Like, how hard can that be? It's just tossing one ball in the air. And, and then I go and give it to my team. I'm like, here, toss this ball in the air. It's easy, watch. And they're like, we're already tossing 17, right? How could yes. we possibly yes. do another one? Yes. So. It's this idea that just because one thing is easy doesn't mean that it's easy in the context of everything that we're doing. And so uh, particularly for visionary types, if they're not self-aware, if they're not paying attention to where they're driving their organization, they will drive it into just an enormous amount of complexity and it's entirely unnecessary. Because in their mind, if I'm not creating something new, we're not going to survive. Yes. Now, now, why is that? Because that was true when they started the organization. It's not that that was never true, right? They had to do that to create a viable business in the first place. But if you're not careful, you get stuck there. And, and it makes it not fun because you end up owning all of this responsibility to keep things moving, which visionary types are not good at doing. You end up burning out the very best folks who are good at maintaining things mm -hmm. because you're giving them so many new things that they can't make any progress on 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 any of what they're they're being given. And so that's a big one is not managing complexity. And the truth of it is, is the world is conspiring against you in that way. Right. Like out of we teach there's four different leadership styles and out of the four, only one of them actually does that well. Right. So three out of four will inherently create more complexity especially in small organizations. Uh, so that's really the first one is, are we keeping things simple? Yeah. And so what we tend to do is go out and find help in creating the next new thing, right? Uh, an example uh, is I was working with a landscaping company and they were having all kinds of trouble because they had bought a, uh, a pool company. And they're like, well, we do residential work outdoor for people all the time. Why can't we just add pools onto it? And now they're spending 70% of their management time trying to get this pool company off the ground. And they're wondering why things have slowed down on the landscaping side, right? It, we've just introduced this whole level of complexity that wasn't necessary and actually isn't beneficial. Yeah, yeah. It also comes from the outside of the organization, right? Uh, when, especially from folks in my, my profession, right? Because we've all got great ideas on what every organization should do. Mm -hmm. The reality of it is, organizations in that fun stage, right? That entrepreneurial, let's make it up as we go. That's actually appropriate. We, we liken it to, um, have you ever seen six-year-olds play soccer, right? You've got a couple <laughs> of uh, kids. Yeah. Yep. Th that's what leading an organization at this stage is like. If you have less than 25 people, even less than 50 people, then it's all hands on deck all the time. And you can have a little bit of structure and framework in that. But if you have a bunch of people who are like, that's not my job description, then you are slowing your growth and you're causing way more uh, 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 structure and system that's necessary. And it's actually not helpful. Um, but that doesn't work forever. And so most of the folks who are coaches, right, have, have done that 
figured out it broke, figured out how to fix it, and they are offering a solution. And it's like a, a, a professional coach coming and teaching the same drills to six-year-olds that he does, you know, I was just at the Atlanta United game with my son over the weekend. But like, if you have him doing the same drills that those guys were doing and you give it to six-year-olds, it's not gonna work. And it's not because six-year-olds are worse. Those same six-year-olds are one day going to be the professional players that, that you know, can achieve whatever it is. But you have to be doing things that are appropriate for your stage. And, and so from the outside, there's all these things that you should do. You know, you should be this. You should do that. You should have this. And I love that analogy of the six-year-olds playing soccer because the first thing that you hear when you work with an organization that's moving from – six-year-old soccer to positional soccer is well we don't want to have silos right like we don't we don't want the defenders to be separate from the attack man and you're like okay all right well we'll work on that if you're running a business i've got something for you whether you're running system and soul another framework or you've been listening for a while and you know you need to be doing something you have spreadsheets everywhere with different priorities, different objectives, different to-dos, an org chart somewhere. It's messy, it's hard to track, and it gets abandoned over time. We know because we've seen it and we've been there. That's why we've created S2Sync. It's all in one app for your business, from communicating the big picture all the way down to the actions that your team needs to take and the things they need to focus on. We're gonna give you a customizable platform to track, store, and collaborate with your teams as you implement your business framework. So never miss a beat. Inside S2 app, you can build out your long-term vision in the S2 roadmap. You can track weekly and monthly KPIs for your team and individual members on your custom scoreboard. You can organize and outline quarterly objectives with all of the important details, assign ongoing actions, keep a list of your important obstacles, opportunities, and updates you need to discuss in your weekly sync team meetings and so much more. You can access your free trial of the S2 app today. Just go to s2sync.com. That's S2, the number, S-Y-N-C.com. All right, so that is a perfect segue because you're talking about holding the systems and processes in tension with the creativity, the innovation, all those things. So dive into that with a little more detail. So there's cycles to this, and I, I like your language around it. Maybe you can share it, uh, the different stages in, in your language that businesses go through uh, because I think it's helpful for folks uh, and very much aligns with what we teach. But um, I, I feel like most of the time, particularly when it comes to leadership teams, we're looking for balance, right? There's this sense of if we can get balanced and everyone's in harmony, things will be wonderful. But what I've found to be true is that balance is never actually balance, right? Balance is harmony, and it's always pushing us in one direction or another. Uh, neither one is keeping us kind of in that sweet spot in the middle. And so the reason I love the word tension is because there should be a certain degree of discomfort when you come together with your main leadership team. And, and 
And when we start getting away from that discomfort, not that you don't like each other, not that you don't have beers afterwards, you know, not that any of those things are, tr are, are not true, but when we're doing it right and we're coming at a problem from very different perspectives and coming up with the best solution, that's actually an uncomfortable process. There's tension in it, right? And we resolve that tension not by ignoring it, but by embracing it. And so a lot of times what I'm doing, I'll come into teams and they will be very biased into one kind of mode of operation. They're very creative sure. yeah. or they're very structured or I'll walk in and there's this giant rift in between the main creative and the main structure person, right? And they're just at war and everyone else is watching it happen and, and trying not to get stuck in a crossfire, you know? And yeah. so uh, uh, like it's a real thing. And, and uh, one of the things that we focus on a lot in our organization is helping organizations to scale. Because it's one thing to build a business and go from, you know, five people to 25 people or whatever that may be. That's, it's hard work. I don't want to take away from it. But what it takes to get from 25 to 250 is just a very different beast, right? It, it, to go from, hey, we're running a great coffee shop to now we have a chain of coffee shops. If that's your vision, it takes a, an entirely different skill set. Yeah. And, and so for those folks in particular... Uh, a lot of it is actually bringing in a lot more structure than they're used to. And you talk, we don't want to build silos. There's all kinds of excuses. And most of them are actually really valid because their only experience as entrepreneurs with structure is the giant bureaucratic monolith that they left and have beaten for the years, you know? So that's the, when that's your only, you know, your only experiments, there's this false dichotomy between, you know, creativity and initiative right. and structure and process. I'm a self-admitted creative. That's how I started my, my career. Um, and I found great solace in process. I hated it. I resisted it. But when you actually put structure, even around a creative process, even like if you ask me how, how do the best companies innovate? Well, they're really, really clear and really tight on their process. That way they can identify the weaknesses and the opportunities for growth in the process. If you're doing it different every time, you have no real way to innovate. So it's, it's with an appreciation or, or almost murdering that false dichotomy yeah. that some of that, that awesomeness can happen. Yeah, because it's only in the context of, of that tension that that awesomeness can happen consistently for any period of time. You, you may, you know, a broken clock gets it right twice a day. Like you can have some hits and sometimes right. all you need is one great hit to live off of. But if you're trying to build an organization that you want to be around for a while and not become one of those bureaucratic monoliths, right, then you've got to find a way of holding those two in tension. Yeah. Uh, if you want uh, your young entrepreneurial, you know, 10-year startup to, to really achieve a maturity that doesn't cause it to lose its way, but give it the structure to really scale out and, and increase its impact, you've got to be able to hang on to both of them. And... What I've found is a particular challenge about it is that we tend to personify this conflict. It tends to boil down to the people who are wired to be, like you're saying, to be creative, or the people who yeah. are wired to be more linear thinkers, the people who are wired to be more task-oriented, or the people who are wired to be more people-oriented. And so it becomes less of an objective uh, you know, assessment of, you know, where are we? And it becomes a much more subjective you versus me thing. Yeah. 
and that's, that's super really hard to good. cut through. That's so, that's so true. I think you just helped a couple people realize what was happening right there in their own organization. Hey, podcast listeners, System and Soul Coach Bill Green here. I'd like to share an S2 tip with you today as I work with clients to help them gain clarity and control. Today's tip is designed to help you get into a strong weekly sync cadence right out of the gate. Schedule a virtual call as soon as possible after your first weekly sync meeting coming out of your Clarity Day 1 session. There will likely be some loose ends or questions around the foundational tools. Have the S2 coach model the virtual session as an actual weekly sync meeting from the check-in through the cadence of scoreboard, objectives, and actions from Day 1 opportunities and obstacles will arise. Drop those items to the opportunities list and lead a DAT session to address them together. Be sure to leave time at the end to commit and conclude and rate the meeting. While the concept of a weekly sync meeting seems simple enough, executing on it, especially if great meetings haven't been your thing, can be challenging at first. Modeling the simplicity of the weekly sync early will lead to mastery. Hope this helps you and enjoy the rest of the podcast. So it sounds like I'm going to, I want to move us to number three so that we have time. So founders staying engaged, leaving well, is this, is this a personal tension that happens with system and process and, and versus creativity and innovation? Is this an extension of that same concept? It is. It's, it's the personal side of that coin, right? Because vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of founders will fall on the, maybe they won't call themselves always creative, but they are, they're visionary, right? They're, yeah, yeah. they're, uh, they love to start things. They love to solve problems. They don't want to be there like as the problem is solved, but they want to be able to tell people what to do and move on. Like they've got a vision for what the future can be and they want to go after it. Uh, and what ends up happening over the course of however many years it takes to build a, a thriving organization is that they realize at some point and with some degree of pain that not every problem is solved by coming up with a new idea. Like not every growth initiative has to start with a new product or service. Uh, not every meeting has to be this big idea, white you know, blank whiteboard, blue sky thinking, you know, that's, that's actually not most of what business is. It's essential. You can't get rid of it, but what you, what they tend to feel, especially as the organization grows is I've found most founders and visionaries actually feel put out to pasture a little bit because when they were the ones who started it, they were essential for everything. Yeah. And as the organization grows, they become less and less and less and less essential to the point where the day-to-day, -day, they're actually not only non-essential, they can be problematic for the day-to-day. -day. And they, those types tend to run counter to efficiency. They're great for effectiveness, especially over the long run. You know, why do we need to do this? Why is it so important that we change? But they tend to be really, really detrimental to efficiency, to doing the same thing the same way every single time. Uh, and then if we need to update the process and then do the same, same thing, same way every single time. Right. And so what they tend to do is they work so hard in those early days and then they meet all this resistance to what feels like who they are as individuals. Right. Again, this, this tension yeah. is personified. And so in the beginning, they're right more often than not. And so it's okay. And then they reach a point where they realize I'm actually not right more often than not. And that can feel like I'm, I'm bad, right? Or I'm bad yeah. for this business. Yeah. I, I've outlasted my own usefulness in my own company. 
So what, what is, what is Scott coming into an organization? How, what is your, I mean, is this the moment where you sell, leave and go start over? Is that the answer or that's often the solution, right? But I don't think that's the answer. And the reason for that is you've got to look at what you've left behind, right? There are some people who are best off starting and flipping, right? In, in, in a non-derogatory use of the word flipping, right? Like that's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. A, that's a model, right? Like you can go in, you're just, hey, I love to start things. I'm going to start them and exit. That's fine. Uh, and, and with any of these, I really don't, I don't think it's a question of morality. I don't think it's a question of better or worse. But I think what it is, is it's not conducive to what they're trying to build. And so what we tend to do is we build up to a point, then we feel like I'm not here and I'm not necessary anymore. And for the day to day, that's true. But what you are necessary for is who's gonna be the one that changes our day to day when it has to change, right? Great example of this, uh, because it's usually a painful process. If you get an organization that's really, really good at something, and then they recognize, oh, we have to change this and get really, really good at something else to survive and thrive, most organizations can't do that. And the reason for that is their visionaries are long gone. Okay. So, so two quick stories to kind of contrast this uh, uh, that most folks will know at least about the companies. So the first one is IBM. Uh, around the time that it was going from Watson to Watson Jr., uh, because uh, it was the, the son who took over, they, had a, they were moving from their founder to their next generation, right, which is a really pivotal point for this discussion. Uh, what's the role of vision in the organization? The founder's gone. The visionary's gone. What's going to happen now? Is it our job to, to you know, put his vision in a museum and, and try and make it last for as long as possible? Or is it our job to extend that and make it something else? So Watson Jr. comes in. All the pressure is you've got to take care of your dad's company. Your dad built this. Don't screw it up, right? And at the same time, the market's under, about to undergo the biggest transition in the, the history of, of computing. So they're moving from these, uh, these mechanical computers, right? Uh, think imitation game, right? Uh, like switches and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. They've got those at basically every Fortune 500 company at the time. They are the dominant player in the computing machine world. But there's these newfangled devices that we now, early versions of what we now know are computers, right? And they have to decide, are we going to embrace this new technology, which cannibalizes 100% of our existing sales to our best clients? And we don't know if it's actually going to work. We don't know if it'll ever have the processing power that we have in our computing machines. And we don't know if it's going to work consistently. We don't know if it's reliable. We just know it's there. Or are we going to double down? And while everyone else is chasing this ghost of a new technology, we're going to become the ultimate commu computing machine player in the, you know, in the world. That's arguably the better play at the time. Now, we know in hindsight that that, Everyone who made that choice is gone. IBM survives because Watson Jr. says computers are the way of the future. And if we don't embrace it, we're going to change. Does a wholesale overnight, this is what we do now. Rips every part of the organization apart in order to build it back up again to survive this technological transformation. 
that's what it takes. You know, you've got to, the, the ability to do that requires visionary leadership. And if you leave your organization too early, you typically leave it in the hands of people who are, for lack of a better term, caretakers, right? They are there to execute on what you created and do it again and again and do it very efficiently. Well, they can't make that change. And that's what happened at Kodak. And I'll, I'll tell the story quickly, but uh, Kodak actually invents the digital camera. I think you know this. A lot of people yeah. know this, but Kodak invents the digital camera. And if you just see it through this lens, it's really interesting. So at the time, they're a film company. They are faced with the exact same decision as Watson Jr., right? But there's not a strong visionary in the room. And so lots of deliberation. What do they decide? They decide we're going to bury the digital camera. Now, they knew that someone else was going to invent a digital camera. It wasn't even like the computers where they're like, we don't know if this is going to work or not. They know it's coming. There's five, maybe 10 years at the most. But they decide we can do better off for our stockholders and our employees and our leadership team by rocking the next five, maybe 10 years in film sales. And then when that time comes, you know, that's, that it is what it is. Let's just hope it doesn't happen. And they're a novelty item. They're, they're a fraction of what they were, you know, at that time. And so what happens when our visionaries can't stay engaged, when they exit prematurely, when they leave without fully replacing that visionary, maybe even arsonist aspect of what they do in the organization, then they actually don't, they, they actually create the bureaucratic monolith that they left so many years ago. Uh, so give us a couple tips on how a founder visionary can stay engaged when the organization really doesn't need a hundred percent of their horsepower. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things. One is outside of the organization, we build a sandbox, something that doesn't touch the organization, right? That doesn't compete for its resources, but allows you to scratch your visionary itch right? Volunteer on a board, start another company, do whatever it is. Uh, do it part-time, right? Don't let it consume all of your time. Uh, but give yourself a place to, to fly your visionary freak flag. That's really what you're trying to do. You need somewhere that you can really express that without damaging things too badly. Uh, so creating a sandbox outside of the organization is just a healthy way of, of balancing out kind of the internal angst that comes with it. The second is... Uh, that you have to recognize that even though you may feel counterproductive to where the organization is trying to go, the organization needs that resistance to get to the best result. Like, um, there's, uh, there's an old sermon Jensen Franklin was talking about. <laughs> he was comparing the devil to a catfish, but we'll, we'll get past the spiritual side of it. But uh, he talked about this fisherman who would go out and fish for, um, I think, tuna. And uh, when most boats bring the tuna back, they're, they're listless and basically dead. And uh, because of that, they don't taste as good. I don't like fish, so this is a bad example. But let's, let's, let's say that's true. And this one guy is known with a reputation for bringing back uh, live tuna that are, uh, that are vibrant, healthy, and, and he, no one can figure out how he's doing it. So some guy finally talks about letting him go out on the boat with him. And he's like, what's your secret? And he pulls open the hatch and says, look down inside. And there's this giant catfish inside of the holding tank. And all that cash catfish did was went around and bothered all of the tuna the whole time they were inside the boat. 
but it was the very friction and antagonism of that nasty old catfish that kept the tuna in shape. It kept them with the life and vitality that they needed for us to eat them at the end. So bad moral of the story if you're a tuna, but you get the point, which is we need some resistance to get to the best solution. In the same way that early on you needed people who would say no to you every once in a while, right? Or would say, that's great, but what do we actually need to do now? That team needs the resistance that you will naturally bring. And, and the time will come, and it's really hard to do, but if you stay consistent in it, the time will come when you can see a wholesale change is required. And by having been there and being part of the decision-making process the whole time, you will better understand what that means. You'll more accurately pick the time when it matters, and you'll have built the sweat equity with your team that they know this is something that they really have to adapt to. Even more importantly, by staying in there, you will help your team to recognize this is what we need from visionary leadership, whether or not the founder's in the room. So when the time comes that you're actually ready to to sell, to retire, to become inactive and just hold the company as an owner, you can replace your visionary role with another visionary and that visionary will be embraced by the culture because it'll fill a need that they are currently experiencing rather than yeah. rejected by the culture as a virus that was the root of all of our problems a decade ago. Man, that is so good. Scott, thanks for hanging out. I think you helped a lot of people today. Tell us uh, where to find you and Scale Architects. So we're all over all the social media platforms, uh, but you can check us out at www.scalearchitects.com. If you're interested, particularly around those root causes, you're interested in knowing what those patterns are and how they're affecting your organization, we actually have a book on it. It's behind me for those who are on video, but it's called Predictable Success, and we're giving it away for free. So if you go to book.scalearchitects.com, you can get a free copy, physical copy of that book. Uh, pay a couple bucks for shipping, but uh, it'll walk you through what those patterns are and help you address those root dysfunctions. Yes. Yeah. I, again, not to beat a dead drum, but I know that books helped a lot of people understand what was happening right in their own organization. So thank you. It's very generous giving that away today. Go get that. The link will be in the show notes. And one more freebie for everybody out there. We have, well, we, we've kind of talked about this, Scott, but you know how like leaders have 261 things bouncing around in their head and a lot of times they're not anything new but they're the things that we know we should do and we forget and so they just bounce around so me and my team literally sat down and mapped out there's 261 business work days in the year and we created one thought question or action for every single day of the year in a you know couple sentence email so if you go to the261.com uh, brand new, you can put in your email and start getting these. And it's just one simple thing every day that we can take action on as a leader. So we've kind of mapped out your, your leadership initiatives for you, for your team, for your managers, for the entire year. You can get that there for free at the, and then the numbers 261.com. So that. we've got a couple of freebies for everybody today. Thanks for hanging out, Scott. Listener, we will see you next time.